as they watched him die in front of their eyes, which is important to recognize. So here's a little tangent. Some people, when they read Matthew 27 and they hear Jesus say, my God, why have you forsaken me? They begin to wonder, like, is this some sort of breach in the relationship between the Father and the Son? Is this some sort of breach in the Trinity? No, that's not what's taking place here. It's simply not what is going on here. Jesus is bringing up this psalm because he is fulfilling this psalm in their presence and he wants to bring to their remembrance this psalm so that they can see that. They can come to recognize that this psalm is taking place right before their very eyes. So with that said, I want to begin our time in Psalm 22 now by reading the entire psalm, which is somewhat long. So I would encourage you to turn there as well and read along with me. Psalm 22, verse 1. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravaging wool, uh, ravaging and, and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and your rule is over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So, I hope that as we read through that, you heard hints of what we just saw in Matthew 27. So, before we we jump into Psalm 22 here, let me just give you an overview of the flow of thought. It's actually a pretty simple psalm. And when you back up and look at the big picture, the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 21, the psalmist is going back and forth between explaining the suffering that he is experiencing and the confidence that he is placing in God. And then when we get to the second half of the psalm, verses 22 to 31, the psalm flips a switch. No longer is it talking about this lament. No longer is he talking about his suffering. Now we have this depiction of God's salvation. And it's interesting because as the psalmist is in the midst of suffering, he goes on to explain the salvation that God would eventually bring. But when he's explaining God's salvation, he's explaining it as though it's already happened. So that's the general overview of the psalm. First a lament, and then praising God because he has brought about salvation. So with that said, let's look at Psalm 22, and let's begin in the first half of the psalm, looking at the suffering that David Actually, David wrote this, the suffering that David is describing here. Notice, from the very outset, in the heading, this is a psalm of David. David is actually explaining a situation that he experienced, which might catch you off guard. Because you're thinking, wait a second, I thought this was prophecy. It is, though. This is just not the type of prophecy that we typically think of. When we think of prophecy, we often think of some guy sitting in his room, looking far off into the future, and predicting exactly what will happen. That's not the type of prophecy that we have here. In fact, David is speaking of his very own experience. He's telling a story about his own suffering and his own confidence in God. But this is exactly how prophecy works at times. What David experienced would prove to be a prediction of what the Messiah would also experience. In other words, God is setting up a pattern for Jesus in David. David is, in essence, living out a prophecy in this moment. He's not just predicting it, he's living it out. This is like a prophetic drama, if you will. In a way, this experience is speaking simultaneously about Jesus and David, right? It's not speaking about one or the other. It's speaking about both. 
And we'll see that as we begin to work through the passage. So look at verses 1 and 2. Here we see David felt so forsaken by God that he begins to call out to God. This was something David actually went through. Remember, before David was king, he was well acquainted with suffering. He was pursued by his own father-in-law, Saul, and he was pursued for unjust reasons. And then later in his life, at the very end of his life, he's pursued by his own son, who was seeking to usurp his kingdom and take over his throne. David was well acquainted with suffering. But we have to point out, Jesus felt the same exact sensations, but in an even greater sense. He was also forsaken by his own people. In the same way that David was forsaken by his own father-in-law and his own son, Christ was forsaken by his own people. But these weren't merely his kin. These were the people he actually created. More than that, these were the people he created whom he was coming to save. Those are the people who are destroying his life. In addition, unlike David, Jesus was actually forsaken to the point of death. Jesus was handed over to be killed by people. Right In the situation with David, there's dogs and lions surrounding him, but they're never actually bringing his life to the point of death. Jesus, that's not so. Jesus actually died. But that was God's intended plan all along. You see, when we celebrate Advent, we have to recognize that we are celebrating the fact that God sent his son to die. That's what we are celebrating. We're celebrating the entire ministry of Christ, not merely a baby laying in a pail of hay. We're celebrating a, a, a Messiah who came to redeem his people through the means of death. That was the plan all along. Now, as we continue in the psalm, in verses 6 through 8, we see here that David was mocked by his own people. So as he's experiencing this suffering, he's also being mocked by his own people. He felt the pain and sorrow of being abandoned by God, and now he's feeling the pain and sorrow of being abandoned by the people that he was supposed to be ruling over as king. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They they tr- uh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So while David was certainly mocked, we see instances of that in First and Second Samuel, especially in First Samuel. Jesus was mocked in a much greater way than was David. That's part of the reason I wanted to read that portion from Matthew twenty-seven. As Jesus was hanging on the cross. Person after person railed against him. And oddly enough, I I think this is so fascinating. I noticed this as I was preparing for this message. I've never seen this before. But Jesus is not the only one who quotes Psalm 22 in this passage. When you go to Matthew 27, Jesus clearly quotes Psalm 22. But he's not the only one quoting this psalm. The first people to quote the psalm are actually the priests, the scribes, and the elders of Israel. But get this. They are quoting the words of the antagonists from the psalm. 
I don't know if they realized that. I don't know if they were aware of the reality that they were quoting David's enemies, but they were. Remember, they called out to Jesus. He trusts in God. Let him rescue himself. That's a direct quote from Psalm 22. But it's not David saying that. It's David's antagonists. It's David's enemies making that claim. Those are the words of God's enemies in the psalm. And we have here the leaders of Israel associating themselves with God's enemies. They use the same blasphemous words, but instead of directing them at the anointed king, David, they're they're addressing these words to the anointed Lord of the universe. I mean, how deeply troubling would it have been? Just think of this for a moment. You're, You're making these statements. You're making these claims against Jesus. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Let's imagine for a moment, because I think this is probably what's happening. I doubt the priests knew what they were saying in the moment. Even though they knew Psalm 22, even though they knew the words, I'm sure they weren't cognitively quoting the psalm to him, because that would put them as an antagonist. Like, they knew better than that. But I'm sure the moment Jesus quoted Psalm 22, it brought to memory the fact that they are actually quoting this psalm. They're actually dividing Jesus' garments among themselves. They're fulfilling this passage. Imagine the feeling that must have spread over the crowd in that moment. Jesus was forcing them in that, in that instance to make a decision. Are you going to continue mocking him? Because he wrongly thinks that he's the suffering servant of Psalm 22? Or are we going to repent Because he is the suffering servant. Which is it? Jesus is forcing their hand. They have to make a decision here. I do wonder how many of the people sitting in Jesus' presence in that moment repented. It's a guess in some sense. But we do know at the end of Matthew 27. There were people looking at Christ and saying surely this is the son of God. Maybe you're here tonight and and you need to face the same exact question. Am I a friend or a foe of God? Am I walking past him, jeering at him with the way I live my life, the words that come out of my mouth? Or am I calling on him in faith? Surely this is the Son of God. Which is it? You need to come to terms with that. Now, this depiction of David's suffering, it just gets worse as you continue to read Psalm 22. In verses 12 through 18, we have this long extended depiction of David's suffering. He's surrounded by dogs. He's surrounded by enemies. There are lions encompassing him. And here, the prophetic nature of the psalm begins to really come to life. David mentions he has been pierced. He says his clothes are being divided among his enemies. Now, I have to point out that I am not sure whether this actually happened to David. 
I don't think there was ever a moment in David's life when he was actually pierced. I don't think there was ever a moment in his life when he could actually count all of his bones or when his, his garments were being divided among the people and they were casting lots for his garments. I don't think that actually happened to David. But this is significant. I think David is actually using metaphor here to describe the depth of the suffering that he feels. He's exaggerating his situation. He's, he's speaking about his own situation in, in metaphorical terms. But isn't it wild that in God's divine providence, what David was speaking about himself in a metaphorical way was actually fulfilled in the person of Christ in a literal way? Right? David is just saying, it's as though I have been pierced through. It's as though these people are mocking me to such an extent that they're taking my garments off my back and, and dividing them among, them among themselves in spite of me. But that actually did happen to Jesus. You see, what David is using as a metaphorical explanation of his own experience was a literal fulfillment. It was a direct fulfillment of what Jesus actually experienced. Jesus was pierced. As we saw in Matthew 27, his garments were divided among his enemies, right? When, when David is saying, my, my mouth is dry, my, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross and saying, I thirst. Give me something to drink. Oddly enough, the people who knew the very details of this psalm were looking at Jesus and realizing He is fulfilling this psalm in our midst and we are the antagonists of Psalm 22. Now, as we continue our time in the first half of chapter 22, I have to point out that throughout this explanation of David's suffering, there's this constant reminder that David is placing his confidence in God. For example, look at what we see in verses 3 through 5. So right after he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 3, yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. And you they trusted and they were not put to shame. So right after David mentions that he, he cries out to God. By night, but does not receive an answer. He interjects that God has delivered his people in the past. It's as though he is comforting his own soul with what he knows to be true in the midst of his suffering. David trusted the Lord throughout his life, even in the midst of suffering. He remained faithful to God. Even when life was difficult, even when Saul was was, uh, pursuing David, he trusted in God. You know, some of the the brightest moments from David's life, as we see in the Psalms, actually come when he was suffering, when he was being pursued by David, or by Saul, when he was being pursued by his son Absalom. He was faithful. But we need to recognize that Jesus did the same thing He trusted in God, but he did so to a greater degree. David was not a perfect man. Christ was. Christ did trust 
in his father to the point of death, right? The prayer in the garden is proof of that. As Jesus looked forward to what was coming, as he looked down the barrel at what awaited him, he began to pray to God. As he looked at the fact that he was about to suffer a death on a cross, he looks to God. He remains faithful and he calls out to God, not my will, but yours be done. And we can learn from Christ here. Right? He remained faithful through his trials. And he remained faithful. Why? Because he knew of God's faithfulness. He knew that God was good. You see, while you face the depths of turmoil, while you face suffering and difficulty, you have to place your confidence, not in your own ability to get yourself out of your suffering, not in your own ability to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, but rather in God's ability. And the fact that God is able to control your circumstances. He is able to deliver you. You know, we all face moments when we are left wondering whether or not God is actually present in the midst of our suffering. All of us, though, have to make a choice in that moment. Are we going to place our hope in God's faithfulness? Or are we going to place our hope in the circumstances of life? Just to be vulnerable for a moment. Amanda and I have been married for about five and a half years. And in this short tenure of marriage, we've, we've had some difficult seasons. In the last three years, we've had two miscarriages. Right? We're two for one in the last three years. And it's, it's been difficult, right? Theo is a blessing. But that is a difficult season to go through. And let me just point out that when those sorts of things happen, it's easy to begin to question God. Why? Why is it that you are forsaking us? Why is it that you are taking life instead of giving life? That's, that's essentially what David is doing in this psalm. David was asking these exact type of questions. Why are you forsaking me? Why are you far off? Why is it that when I call out to you in the middle of the night, you are not answering me? But notice, scattered among these questions, littered throughout all of these, these questions that David has for God, are declarations of God's goodness. Even though he brings all these questions to God, he never questions God's kindness or faithfulness. Instead, as he's mulling over his situations, he keeps reminding himself of the fact that God is good. God is faithful. He keeps reminding himself of the fact that God is with him, even when he does not sense it, even when he does not experience noticeable deliverance in this life, he knows that God is with him. And we need to do this very same thing. We need to confront our own doubts. We need to confront our own questions with truth, the truths of Scripture. We need to continually remind ourselves, even in the midst of our suffering, God is good. God is kind. God is faithful. He's faithful to deliver us. And sometimes this means that we need to look to God and just say, not my will, but yours. Right? 
Jesus was not delivered from the cross. He died on the cross. But in an ultimate sense, he was delivered through the resurrection. And it's in the resurrection that we have our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not found in the deliverance in this life. If the Son of God died on a cross, so then can we experience suffering. And yet we are promised deliverance in an ultimate sense. That's a far better deliverance. That's a far better promise than a a promise that we are going to make it through today, through this small situation that we may happen to be in at this moment in time. No, we have eternal confidence and eternal hope in God through the resurrection. You see, the reason that he, Jesus, was able to, to say, not my will but yours, was because he trusted in the goodness and the kindness of God. He knew that the plan he was living out was formed and fashioned by the all-knowing benevolent, benevolent king of history. He knew that the steps he was about to take were laid down before him by his sovereign ruler. This is why both David and Christ portrayed such a profound level of confidence in God, even in the face of suffering. They knew God's character. They knew God to be good. Notice we see even further proof of this in verses 19 through 21. Here David offers his final plea in the psalm. After feeling abandoned, after feeling lonely, this is the final plea he gives. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Notice his next words. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Right? This is a plea that is... In its very essence, hopeful. It's filled with hope. David is portraying his deep confidence in God's power. Though David began this psalm questioning whether God was near, now he's undergirding his questions with a profound trust in the goodness and kindness of God. Though he began by asking, God, where are you? Now he is ending this set of pleas with a confidence that God is near. It's as though he's counseling his soul through the midst of suffering with the truths of the gospel. You see, notice how he ends here. This is like the most profound thing about this psalm is that all of a sudden he goes past tense. God has already offered rescue. It's as good as done. God has offered deliverance. Notice this. From here on out now, the psalm just completely changes. No longer is it a lament. Now it's a song of praise from verses 22 to 31. So from here, let's let's now look at verses 22 to 31. Because here now, David begins to describe God's salvation. And this here is where the connections to Christ become all the more evident and all the more profound. Look at how salvation, God's salvation is described here. Here's just an overview of these these verses. In verses 22 to 26, David explains that all of Israel has benefited from the fact that God has rescued David. 
verse 27 and 28, now he shows that all of the nations, the foreigners, they have benefited from the fact that God has rescued David. And then in verses 29 to 31, he points out that future generations even have benefited from the fact that God has rescued David. I want to just show this. Verses 23 and 24. Look at what we see here. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe. All you offspring of Israel. Here's why. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried out to him. So here he just straight up goes into the past tense and he says, Israel, praise God, he saved me. That's essentially what he's saying here. And then when we, when we keep going, verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Finally, verse 30, he, now he, he's looking at future generations yet to even be born. And he's saying, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. I mean, in these verses, David is essentially saying, God has saved me, and it is a benefit to Israel, it's a benefit to the nations, and it's a benefit to coming generations who have yet to even be born. And these realities are true. Let me just point out, David experiencing salvation, it did benefit Israel because their king was spared. The nations, future generations, they also benefited from David's salvation. David knew his lineage would serve the Israelites as king. The next generations would be blessed by David being rescued. David also realized nations will be blessed. Right? As a king, as a benevolent king, he will bless Israel and he will also bless the surrounding nations. But we cannot miss the fact that David's salvation would eventually lead to the birth of the Messiah. And by sparing David, God brought about the Messiah. And guess what? This coming king would bring lasting salvation to Israel. He would bring lasting salvation to the nations, and he would bring lasting salvation to to future generations. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The very same Israelites who scorned Christ were then given a second opportunity to partake in God's salvation once the resurrection took place and the the gospel was declared to the people who tortured him on the cross. In fact, Jesus actually came to fulfill every one of the promises made to the people of Israel. And he did this by living out Psalm 22. He suffered the pain of death in order to accomplish the salvation described in the second half of this psalm. Jesus brought salvation to the ends of the earth. When when David's sons blessed the nations, they did so, but in in a way that does not even compare to the ways that Christ blessed the nations. 
No other king in the line of David was capable of making the nations fellow heirs with the people of God. And yet when Christ died on the cross, he tore down the wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. Now through the work of the Christ, the nations... This means us. We have been brought near to the people of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. So in this way, David does foreshadow Jesus. David did suffer. He did trust in God throughout the midst of his suffering. That did happen. And David did praise God after he experienced salvation. He even recognized that his salvation would benefit Israel. It would benefit the nations. It would benefit future generations. But all of these realities were a mere foreshadow of what took place in Matthew 27. At the death of Jesus. He suffered, but his suffering was far greater than David's. He was abandoned to the point of death. Jesus trusted in God in the midst of his suffering. In a far greater way than did David. Never once did Jesus go astray from the plan of God. Even when he was faced with the most severe of temptations, he persevered every single time. And finally, Jesus' deliverance that he experienced through the resurrection was far greater than David's experience of deliverance. And, and, And the fruit of Christ's deliverance was far greater. When he was delivered from the grave... He then delivers a promise to all people who trust him that they will be delivered from the grave. That is why, as Jesus hung on the cross, he brought up Psalm 22. He was reminding those who looked on him, hope is not lost. He's reminding his disciples, God is working out his salvation through his plan. This has all been promised. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying that his relationship with the Father has been severed or or been interrupted for the first time in history. That's not what he's saying. He's making a declaration to everyone who's watching Salvation has come. It has been accomplished. Which is why we cannot forget Jesus' last words while he hung on the cross. It is finished. Surprisingly, Jesus' last words are remarkably similar to the last words in Psalm 22. Verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. It is finished. God has done it. God has seen to it. Salvation has been achieved. Let's pray. God, you are a miraculous God. Father, we just stand in awe of these details, we stand in awe of the reality that you have saved a people through